Well, if you have a Bible, you can go to Revelation 10. Is where we're going to be tonight. We're going to do the uh, whole chapter here, Lord willing. For Christmas, I got my wife a vinyl record player, which I know will make some of you laugh, because with all of our technological advancements and everything we've come up with and all of our gadgets and everything, uh, ultimately, your millennial pastor bought his wife a gift that you probably asked your parents for when you were teenagers. So, uh, But there is nothing like a vinyl record. And we were just listening to one last night, and uh, some of our favorite albums, like uh, one of our favorite uh, Alison Krauss bluegrass albums, like when you listen to the vinyl, it's just got those little pops in it, you know, and all, all that just, it, it makes it uh, just sound a, a bit more authentic. And my wife pointed out that when it comes to a vinyl record, you have to like make an effort. With Spotify, you just kind of hit play on your liked songs or, you know, go to rock genre, country, whatever, shuffle thousand songs, hit play. It can play forever, right? It's just got endless amounts of songs that can play and you, you don't really have to put any thought into it. But if you're going to listen to a vinyl, you're like, well, what type of music do I want to listen to and uh, and then which artists do I want to listen to, and which album do I want to listen to, and then as you're listening to it, you have to tend to that thing, right? You, you got to go back over there and flip it over after, uh, after four or five songs. So there's an intentionality to it that we really enjoy. And another thing that I've noticed, different than Spotify from the vinyl record, is sometimes, you know, when I listen to Spotify, a lot of times I've got like 700-some songs in there. I've put the, clicked the like button, right, the little heart button. And at any point, I can just go to the like songs, click shuffle, and it's like Michael Radio, right? It's just I listen, listen to all the songs that I like and just it shuffles them up for me. But when you listen to songs like that out of context, away from the album that they are from, sometimes they have these intros and these outros and you're like, what is this for? What is the point of this? And then when you go and you listen to the actual record, you realize the point of it is that it was leading into the next song right? Or it was leading out of the song before, or it was leading into the end of the A side of the album and you need to flip it to the B side or it's leading into the B side of the album. And, and so you realize that those little intros and outros are interludes. And those interludes exist to give the listener a chance to catch their breath, a chance to prepare for what is to come and to consider what they have just heard, a chance to recalibrate or a chance to flip the record, right? And so tonight, we have our second interlude in the book of Revelation. The first one came in the second cycle that we've seen in Revelation between the breaking of the sixth and the seventh seals. And it served the purpose of letting us know that God was still saving his people. In the seals, we saw in the first four seals, conquest, war, famine, death. These things will be in the world until Jesus returns. In the fifth seal, we saw how Christians were being martyred and killed and that this is something that will happen in the world until Jesus returns. And then in the sixth seal, there was judgment and there was this haunting question after the breaking of the sixth seal, which said, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The first interlude in Revelation comes in Revelation 7, and it answers that question. Who can stand? Well, in that first interlude, in between the sixth and seventh seals, we saw the redeemed of God were able to stand. The redeemed of God were able to stand in Him. They are the sealed servants of God on the earth, represented in the 144,000. They are the great multitude who will worship Him in heaven. 
And so things are going to be bad in the world until Jesus comes back. We know that, but the interlude in Revelation 7 reminds us that God was still operating on his plan of redemption, still protecting his people. Now we get another interlude, a second interlude, and it is found in between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. The sixth trumpet last week showed us the horror of war on the earth until Jesus returns and how that war is this sounding alarm that shows us just how terrible sin is. War shows us what happens when God removes his restraining hand and the depravity of humanity is on full display and the war also serves as an alarm, as a warning to people that hey, in the end there's going to be one final great war and you don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus when that happens. This interlude that we get here tonight is longer than the first one. It will stretch from the beginning of chapter 10 all the way to the middle of chapter 11, and then the seventh trumpet blast will come, the wrath of the Lord will come down uh, upon the earth, and in the seventh trumpet you have final judgment and the end of the third cycle. So, uh, this interlude tonight gives us a break. It's a breather. Right, Because chapter 9 is brutal. Chapter 9 is filled with all this imagery of like hell and the devil and Satan and demons and locusts and war and blood and sulfur and fire. I mean, it's and so it's a break from that and it it gives us a chance to catch our breath and to see what God is doing through the church and how he's protecting the church uh, during this time until Jesus returns. So Revelation 10, and I'll start reading for us in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Father, as I prayed earlier, apart from you, God, we have natural eyes. We are not able to discern spiritual things. So we just ask that your Holy Spirit would give us spiritual eyes tonight, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And you give us hearts, God, that are open to you and your truth. And I pray that we will walk away tonight just loving your word even more than when we started. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This interlude in Revelation 10 starts the same way as the interlude in Revelation 7. In that first interlude, John sees four angels. In this interlude, he sees one. It's a mighty angel. When you read the description of this angel, it's really tempting to think that it's Jesus. He comes down from heaven wrapped in a cloud. 
His legs are like pillars of fire, very reminiscent of uh, God leading the people out of Egypt by the cloud and the flame, right? Also reminiscent of some of the descriptors of Jesus that we saw in chapter 1. The rainbow over the head makes us think of the rainbow that we saw around God's throne in chapter 4. The face that is shining like the sun reminds us again of chapter 1 where Jesus' face was shining like the sun at its full strength. When he calls out in verse 3, it's like a lion roaring, which reminds us of Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah in chapter 5. And you're like, all right, so what's the problem, right? It's Jesus. Despite all that imagery, I don't think that this is the Lord Jesus here. The biggest reason I don't think it's Jesus uh, is because Jesus is not called an angel in Revelation in any other place, and I tend to think that when Jesus shows up in Revelation, it's really clear. It's like, hey everybody, in case you're missing it, the star of the show is on the screen, right? It's like, John wants us to know, there he is, there's the lamb, there's the lion of Judah, there's the conqueror, there's the king of kings, like he's always, I think, really clear when Jesus shows up in Revelation. So for me, it's not clear enough, but there's other reasons I don't think it's Jesus. For example, in verse 6, the angel swears by the Lord, and the most natural reading of that would be to assume that the angel, if he is swearing by the Lord, is not the Lord. All says another mighty angel, that is a reference to the beginning of chapter 5. You say another mighty angel, where's the first mighty angel? He's in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll uh, written on the back, sealed with the seven seals. And then if you keep reading in verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So this is an angel like that angel, right? It's another mighty angel like the mighty angel that we saw in chapter 5, verse 1. Question is, why does he have so many of the qualities of Jesus? Well, I think it's because the angel is reflecting the glory of the sun, right? This is a heavenly creature, and he is reflecting the glory of heaven. And it's not the only time we see this in Scripture, In Daniel 10, Daniel sees an angel. It says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So that sounds just like Jesus in Revelation 1. Right? If, if you go read Revelation 1 and the description of Jesus by John, I mean, it, it, it just goes right down that list. And yet, in Daniel 10, it's, it's not the Lord, it's an angel. Because again, we have an angel reflecting the glory of God, reflecting the glory of the Son. Now this mighty angel is holding a little scroll, little because the angel is mighty, so he's dwarfing the scroll, and the scroll is open. Listen, plenty of people will disagree with me on this. Plenty of people will agree with me on this, like many things in Revelation. For me, I believe this is the same scroll from chapters 5 and 6 because I don't have any reason to not think that. All right? That scroll was really important, and I don't have any reason to think that we're not dealing with the same scroll here. That the scroll that was in the hand of the Almighty, with all of history written down on it between Christ's first and second coming, right? The scroll that nobody was worthy to open but Jesus. The scroll that when he opened the seven seals started to show us the way that history would look. Conquest, war, famine, death, martyrdom. 
right? His return, where he sets all things right. This is that very scroll. Jesus has opened it. He's the only one worthy to open it. Now, another mighty angel holds it. And as he does, he assumes the posture of an oath. His right and left feet are firmly planted in verse 2. In verse 5, you see that he raises his right hand to heaven, so he's taking an oath. And then in verse 6, he swears and he makes an oath. One foot is on the sea and one foot is on the land, which tells us that the information on the scroll, which is going to be given to John and ultimately eaten by John, it's a global message. It's for the merchants who spend their time on the seas and on the shores, and it's for the farmers who spend their time in the middle of the fields. It's for the whole world, every nation, global. Which is why John is charged to prophesy about its uh, contents to everybody, right? Uh, Chapter 10, verse 11, he's told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The angel roars like a lion in verse 3. This is the sound of judgment. Judgment is about to close down like a lion's jaws on the earth. Time is running out. We know it's the sound of judgment because it draws on language from the prophets Joel and Amos. Amos pronounced guilt over Israel, and he warned of the judgment of God to Israel, and he said, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken to you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 4, he says, Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? And then in verse 8, the lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Joel speaks about God's judgment in a similar way. He's not just warning Israel. Joel's warning all of the nations. And he says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So this is a sound of judgment. Judgment is about to come down on the earth after this interlude. The seventh trumpet is going to blow. When the angel's voice roars, John says the seven thunders sounded. And the angel tells John, don't write down about the thunders. He's about to, right? But the, the angel says, don't, don't write it down. Don't write down about the thunders. This is odd because it seems to go against what John is told to do at the beginning and the end of the book. In Revelation 1.19, he was commissioned, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So you can see why he is eager to write, to write about the thunders, right? It's like, this is what I've been doing this whole time. It's what I'm going to do here. I hear thunder, I'm going to write about the thunder. In chapter 22, verse 10, John is told, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So if he's supposed to write, and he's not supposed to be sealing, how come here in this situation, he hears a voice from heaven saying to him, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down why is the voice from heaven telling him to seal it up if he's supposed to be writing it down why is the voice from heaven telling him to seal it up if he's not supposed to be sealing it up what are the seven thunders we start there we really don't totally know we have to try our best to figure it out from the scriptures but we don't totally know is it information about the future that god is concealing so that we would trust him more until jesus returns I don't know. 
Maybe it is. Maybe it's the secret things of the Lord. Maybe it's part of that. Maybe the seven thunders are part of the secret things of the Lord that Deuteronomy 29.29 talks about when it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We may do all the words of this law. Are the seven thunders an example of those secret things? We just need to leave them with God? Or are the seven thunders a vision so glorious that John's not able to share it with us because it would just blow our little finite minds apart? Like Paul's vision in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul said, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Are the seven thunders more things that man may not utter? As we try to figure this out, I think it's important for us to keep the context of Revelation in mind. If we remember the structure of the whole book, I think it starts to make more sense. Look at what happens right after John's told not to write about the thunders. Uh, and, And I'm about to go on a little bit of a trail here. It's all about the thunders, all right? So if you're like... What's going on with the thunders? He's talking about other things now. It's all about the thunders, okay? We're going to come back around. But right after he's told not to write about the thunders, the angel raises his right hand and takes an oath. And he swears an oath by God who lives forever and ever and who created everything that exists that there will be no more what? No more delay. When the seventh trumpet is blown by the seventh angel, final judgment's going to come and the world's going to end. And when that happens, John says the mystery of God would be fulfilled. The mystery of God that the angel is referring to is the gospel. That's the mystery of God that is to be fulfilled. We are sinners. We have broken God's commandment. We deserve God's wrath. In his love for straying sinners, God sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to show us not only how we should live, but to die for all the times that we failed to live up to his standards. And as we have just sang about, he resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is the victorious conqueror over sin and death. Anyone who repents of their sin and turns to him in faith will be saved eternally. That's the mystery that's being talked about here. And it's called a mystery because the prophets longed, Amos and Joel, they longed to understand how all this worked together. They preached the words, But they did not have the full counsel of the gospel at their disposal. It had not yet been revealed. But now we sit here with a completed Bible in our hands and the mystery of the gospel is no longer a mystery in the new covenant. It has been revealed, right? Ephesians 3 verse 4 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Right after that, Paul says, This is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is that God is using the gospel of Jesus to make one body, one new covenant community for himself, Jew and Gentile, under Jesus who is the head, the church, right? That's the church, Jew and Gentile under Christ who is the head. That's the mystery. 
The prophets longed to understand it, and now we stand here, Bibles in hand, we're able to look back at all the prophecies and look back at Holy Week and and look back at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and, and what happened in the book of Acts with the early church and read the epistles, and we can see what the prophets longed to see as God gives us spiritual eyes, we can see the mystery of God and how it is being fulfilled. So going back to verse 7, what the angel is swearing is that when the seventh trumpet blows, there will be no more delay, and the mystery of God will be fulfilled in completion totally and fully, because in his return, Jesus is going to consummate what he established in his first coming. He is going to bring to fruition what he started in his first coming. He's already taken away the sting of sin and death with the cross and with the resurrection, but now He will crush it once and for all along with the destroyer who rules over the bottomless pit in chapter 9. And when He does this and He vanquishes evil and He sets up His eternal reign on the new earth, the fulfillment of the mystery of God will have come in totality. Totally fulfilled, right? We still have some promises that we're told about, we understand, but but we're waiting on them to come. There's not going to be any more waiting. The promises are going to come to the people of God, and we will exalt God for the way that he has fulfilled every promise for unending ages. You say, that's all great. What's it got to do with the thunders? Well, remember the whole book, right? Revelation is seven cycles. And in each one of those seven cycles, we have uh, some literary device that's being used to show us how things will be until Jesus comes back and what it will be like when Jesus comes back. So cycle one, we saw the churches. Cycle two, the seals. Cycle three, the trumpets. Still to come, there's war. There's the seven bowls. There's the metaphor of Babylon. We have the millennium to come. Seven different literary devices to show us the same thing from seven different perspectives showing us how Jesus is going to come back and what it will be like until he does. So with that in mind, what I think the thunders are is an eighth literary device. Okay? We've got like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, and these are the seven thunders. And so John hears it and he goes, ooh, an eighth thing, right? I'm going to write this down. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, no, don't write it down. There's already seven cycles. God's perfect plan, right? Seven, God's perfect number. God's perfect plan is already underway. So yes, he is thundering in his wrath, but there's no eighth cycle to write about. Because when the seventh trumpet sounds, or when the final seal is opened, or when the final bowl is poured out, history as we know it is going to come to an end and the age of glory will begin. No more needs to be written, no more delay. After this interlude, Christ is going to come back. He's going to consummate his kingdom. He's going to fulfill the mystery of God. And everything written by the prophets is going to come to pass. But even though the thunders are not to be written down, don't think that it lessens God's wrath. He's still thundering. And the thunder, much like the lion's roar, is associated with judgment. Like in Exodus 9, when Moses stretches out his staff toward heaven, the Bible says the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down to the earth and the and hail upon the land of Egypt. When Isaiah speaks about judgment in Isaiah 29, he says, You will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. So while John was not to write about the thunder, you still hear it because God's wrath very much is still present against sin. 
But God doesn't need any more words to explain his anger towards humanity's sin. His thunderous wrath is going to be poured out when Jesus returns. There's no need for an eighth literary device. And yet the long-suffering wrath of God in that thunder is still there. It's still a warning that people must repent. Verse 8, the same voice that tells John not to write about the seven thunders tells John to take the scroll from the angel. And John does this in verse 9, and the angel gives him some very odd instructions, right? He says, eat it. I get a lot of feelings when I get a new book. A desire to eat it is not one of them, right? I, my wife will make fun of me because I sniff my books. I like to smell books. I'm a book guy. I enjoy the smell of a new book. The, I tell you, you know what book smells better than any other book? The Bible, of course. There is nothing like the smell of a new crisp Bible and those pages are crinkling. I just love all of it. So anyways, I love unfolding the little ribbons out the bottom. I love everything about a new Bible. But never am I thinking, I wonder what it would be like to munch on this. You know what I mean? Like nobody does. When you go to Barnes & Noble, they don't have like, you know, this is a book, it's, it's suspense, three thriller, it takes bear, right? That's bear. So this language has to be symbolic has to be. And that is what so much of Revelation is. God giving us pictures so we can understand the eternal reality of things. There's an eternal reality regarding John's relationship to this scroll that is being communicated in this picture of him eating it. We've already established the scroll is that open scroll from chapters 5 and 6, but why is John supposed to eat this thing? And how come it's going to be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach? Well, to get to the bottom of it, we've got to understand that verses 8 through 11 are strongly linked to Ezekiel's commission as a prophet. And you can't deny it, okay? I don't care if you're a preterist, idealist, dispensationalist, future, put any ist on the back of your name. You can't deny that verses 8 through 11 are, are, is, is a parallel text to Ezekiel's commissioning in Ezekiel 2 and 3. Ezekiel 2 verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. This is another reason, by the way, I think that we're dealing with the scroll of, of chapters 5 and 6. That had writing on the front and back, and here, this commissioning, so linked to Ezekiel's, also there's writing on the front and back with Ezekiel's scroll. But there's writing on the front and back, and he says there's words on it of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So the parallels are there, right? They're both being told to eat a scroll. They're both being told that they're going to eat a scroll that is sweet and bitter. It's not as explicit with Ezekiel, but if you look in Ezekiel 2 verse 10, the scroll has lamentation and mourning on it. So that, that's the bitterness, right? The, the lamentation, the mourning, the woe, but it's also got sweet words. And both of them are told to relay the contents of that scroll to other people. So as we try to understand why in the world John has eaten this thing, we can look to Ezekiel 2 and 3, and, and, and is Ezekiel given a reason of why he's supposed to ingest the word? Well, in Ezekiel 3, verse 3, he says, Feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. So Ezekiel then is to not just preach the word of God. He is to do that. He's a prophet, right? The prophet articulates the word of God to the people. But he's not just to preach the word of God. He must eat the word of God. 
He must ingest the Word of God. He can't just call on others to live on the Word. He has to live on the Word himself. And it's the same way for John. He's being called by God to be the revelator, right? He's got to take the work of revelation to the church to tell them about the glory of Christ, to warn them about the sin of man, to tell them what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back, to rejoice with them that Jesus is going to conquer every enemy. But that can't just be what comes out of John's mouth. As he's preaching that, it's got to sink into his own heart. And so it goes with every prophet and every preacher. The preaching must be heeded by the preacher. A man named Richard Baxter, almost 400 years ago, wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor, which, for my money, is as good as a book on pastoral ministry that's ever been written. And in that book, he says, Oh, sirs, how many men have preached Christ and perished for a lack of saving interest in him? How many who are now in hell have told their people the torments of hell and warned them to avoid it? How many have preached the wrath of God against sinners who are now feeling it? Oh, what sadder case can there be than for a man who made it his very trade and calling to proclaim salvation and to help others attain it, after all that, to be shut himself out. A holy calling will not save an unbeliever. Let me tell you as a pastor, that's pretty much as hard of a piece of writing as you're ever going to read. The first time I ever read that, it was one in the morning and I was sitting in my kitchen and uh, all I could think of was, Lord, Lord. Right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Every pastor has to take heed of their own lives. Are we ingesting the word? Are we ourselves being changed by the word? Because you will not be holy simply by preaching the contents of the scroll. And that's what this is about. So when John takes the scroll and he eats it in verse 10, it's bitter and sweet, like a Sour Patch Kid, okay? Eat a Sour Patch Kid... Okay, it's sour, but then it's sweet. But then when you eat it, it burns in your stomach because I don't think you're supposed to be eating stuff like that as a human being, right? And so your stomach's burning because it's going, this is not food. What did you just put in me? And so, so here we have a sweet and bitter scroll being eaten by John. Why is it this way? Well, it's sweet because it's God's words on the scroll, right? And so that's the reason it's sweet. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it's sweet because it contains the promises of redemption for the people of God, like the promise we read in Revelation 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's, that's a sweet thing for John to ingest, to con- consider that Jesus is forming a new people for himself, and he's doing it from every nation. The images of the redeemed sealed on earth, and the redeemed worshiping in heaven in the first interlude in chapter 7. God's word is sweet because of all these things, right? And because it comes from him, and because it's pure and beautiful truth, and it promises redemption to us. So then why does it cause John this bitterness and this heartburn? Why does it make his stomach bitter? Because while the word of God is the anchor that we love, there are aspects of it that cause us to lament. In one sense, we lament because the Bible tells us there are things that are worth lamenting about. And when it comes to John's scroll, there's a lot of darkness on that scroll. Whether it's the final judgment that comes with the breaking of the sixth seal or the demon locust rising from hell or what is to come in the blowing of the seventh trumpet or the war to come with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet in chapters 12 and 13. 
The truth of the matter is that God's Word contains heartbreaking images that simultaneously get us excited. Hey, look at what's to come. But they also cause us to lament because we know that our friends and our family in this world is not ready for this. That there are people that we dearly, dearly love where if the seventh trumpet would be, uh, was to blow tomorrow, they would be in great peril. They are not ready. Therefore, when we read that he's going to come back and he's going to judge the world in righteousness, we rejoice at the redemption, we rejoice at the justice, but we also lament the fact that there's people we love who will be on the receiving end of that justice. So our mouths have the taste of sweetness when we've taken in the word of God, but our hearts think about all those who are rejecting it and the danger they're in. The scroll may also be bitter because as John tries to tell the world about its contents, he's going to be rejected. Ezekiel faced a similar prospect. Right after Ezekiel's commissioning there in chapter 3, the Lord says, For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. So it's not going to be hard for you to communicate with them. They know how you talk, Ezekiel. You talk in the same Hebrew they talk in. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. They understand your Hebrew, but they don't have eyes to see the truth in what you're saying. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. How do you like that commissioning? How do you like that seminary graduation for Ezekiel? Ezekiel, you can eat this book, you're going to go tell all of Israel about it, they're not going to listen to a thing you say, and they're going to want to string you up for everything you say. When God's servants take God's words to the world, they are often met with resistance, which is another reason why the sweet word can be bitter. Listen to how Paul describes his own ministry in 2 Corinthians. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure he's talking about is the gospel that we preach. He says, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the, body, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying that in order for me to take the life of Christ to the world, I also have to take his death to the world. To show them the glory of the eternal life that he offers, I have to suffer like he suffered. And it's the same for us. When we preach the message of the kingdom, we may have to suffer like the king. It's not likely that the people in this room would ever suffer to the point of death for the king, be persecuted to the point of death, become a Christian martyr, but you can't rule it out. You never know where you're going to be and what's going to happen. But persecution is a reality of the Christian life. You don't need to seek it out. I'm going to go find me some persecution. Just live for Jesus. You will find it. It will find you. If you are a faithful prophet like Ezekiel or John, it's going to come, and there will be some bitter with the sweet. But that doesn't stop God from sending John out. He is told that he will prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so John is to bear witness to the whole world, the prophecy that explains what is happening and what will happen to the whole world. He is to explain to the whole world the dangers of God's wrath, the gracious offer of eternal life in Jesus. Anybody can hear it. 
Anybody can respond to it from any place, any status. But it does demand a response. Which means that anybody from any place of any status is in eternal danger if they don't respond to Christ in faith. As we think about this and how it applies to our lives, I think we should recognize that John is a sort of prototype for the work that the church does until Jesus comes back. Right? The work that John is to do here, to, to ingest the word and then to take the word to the world, that, that, that is really what we do. We're living in this time now between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. We're living in this time where Satan and his forces are in the world and they're trying to use the depravity of man to destroy the world. And until Jesus comes back, we've got the same job as John to tell the world about what Christ is doing in the nations and to tell the world what he's going to do when he comes back and to tell the world how they can be sure they are on his side. And so what we need to do is the same as John in this text. We must receive the word. And we must digest the word and internalize it. And then we must proclaim it. It's the weekly cycle of Christian living. Receive the word, digest it, transform by it, take it to the world, come back to church on the Lord's Day, start the whole process again. John Stott says, in the last resort, we engage in evangelism today, not because we want to, or because we choose to, or because we like to, because we've been told to. And so what John Stott is saying is that if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not sharing what you are taking in, what you are ingesting of the word, right? If you are not then taking that back out to the world and you're like, well, I'm not doing it because I don't, I don't like sharing my faith or I don't want to share my faith or I don't choose to share my faith. He's saying at the very least as a Christian, you ought to do it because you were told to do it. Like if you love Jesus, you will obey Jesus and he told us to do it. So we must eat and we must tell. If you don't want to tell, you don't choose to tell, there may be a host of reasons why. Too busy, too forgetful, too scared, too nervous. But part of the obedience that is required of us to, to be holy in our lives is to crucify our excuses. And to say, he told me to do this, so I do it. Trusting that if I go and share my faith, ultimately he will give me joy in my obedience. So as believers, we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis, what am I learning? What am I eating? If we're honest, some of us eat a lot of stuff we shouldn't. When we talk about Sour Patch Kids, man, I mean, there's spiritual versions of that, isn't there? If we're not reading our Bibles and we're just like feeding on the junk food of the world, what do you think is going to happen to us? We should always be asking ourselves, what am I learning? How is it changing me? And who am I telling about it? Those are three questions that should be on the forefront of our minds at all times as believers. What did God teach me in his word today? How does that impact my living? Who can I share this with? Who needs this good news? Because during this time where we're waiting for the final uh, blast of the trumpet, we are not to be idle. We are supposed to be fishing for men, winning and gaining souls. The thunders are not to be written down. The delay is almost up, but our mission is as important as ever. So let us be the workmanship of Christ by fulfilling the Great Commission. Take what we have learned to be transformed by it and to share it with the world one soul at a time. We'll get into the temple next week. Let's pray.
Father God, I thank you that we can stand here on this side of the cross as New Testament believers tonight, not longing to understand the mystery of the Old Covenant and the mystery of the New Covenant and how it all works together. God, your your mystery has been revealed to us in Christ, and we have the Bible in our hand, and we have it in our language, and Lord, what more could we ask for tonight as as English-speaking Christians? What more could we ask for? So we thank you for that, God, and and I pray, Lord, that um, tonight we would leave here wanting to do the same work as John, to, to go to the nations, Lord, the nations that are in our backyard, the nations that are on the other side of the world, Lord, but to go to the nations and to tell them about your son Jesus and to tell them about the cross, to tell them about the empty grave, to tell them about uh, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, to, to tell them about all the joy that comes with obedience, to tell them about everything that you have told us. Father, I, I pray that um, if we have abandoned that if we've drifted from it as individuals, that you would call us back to that work, that you would bring back to our minds these questions that we should be asking regularly. What am I learning? How is it changing me? Who am I telling? And I also pray that for us as a church, God, as a church body made up of individuals, you would not allow us, God, to drift from our mission. Even I'll pray for myself this weekend as I coach two upper basketball games. Father, winning and losing matters not. We are telling people about Jesus all weekend. It's literally the only thing that matters in this room this weekend is telling this community about Jesus. The rest of it's just a vehicle to get there. Don't let us lose sight of that, Lord. The mega egg hunt and and the, the Christmas lights and all the different things that we do, God. I pray that we would see all of those just as opportunities to put people in touch with this gospel that is changing our lives, that has rocked our world, that has flipped our entire lives upside down, that has changed us from wanting to seek out our own agendas to seeking yours, God. I pray that we would take that passion and and that fire that you have given us by saving us and giving us your Holy Spirit and we truly would share it, God. That we wouldn't get tunnel vision and that we wouldn't lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. So, Lord, give us, uh, we've got the same job as John. I pray that we would be passionate about it. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, put people in our paths that need to hear the truth and that you would give us the boldness to share it. And Father, I pray that their foreheads would not be hard and that they would receive the word. But if they respond to us, Lord, with vitriol and with anger, I pray that they would receive nothing but love back and that you would give us the strength to be able to stand strong and to continue, Lord, to tell people about what we are learning, how it's changing us. Use your church as your witness, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.